Hi everyone, welcome to Trader Chats, unique perspectives from seasoned traders. I'm your host, Imran Larka, founder of Options Insight and 20-year professional options trader. As you might know, I became a trading mentor about three years ago, but I thought these conversations would be a great way for my students to gain valuable perspectives from some of the professional traders that I know and respect. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Trader Chats, everyone. Today is our special Q2 roundtable edition, and I'm super excited to have some serious heavyweights in the macro and trading world joining me today. So we've got Darius Dale from 42 Macro, we've got Brent Kachuba from Spot Gamma, and we've got hey. Alf Pecatiello from the Macro Compass. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Pleasure. You, it's great to be here, brother. Yeah, bro. And uh, now to take the pressure off me a little bit, I've got Aaron Brill here, who's the latest edition of the Options Insight team, who's going to be moderating the discussion. Um, you may know him from his brilliant breakdowns on our YouTube channel. Um, and if you haven't checked them out, I suggest you do. And with that, Aaron, take it away. Yeah. How's everybody doing? So like Imran said, I'm Aaron Brill, newest member of the Options Insight team. And before we kind of get going here, I just wanted to express my gratitude to all you guys for not only coming on for our listeners, but allowing me to be a, a fly on the wall a little bit here as I've I've been a follower of each of yours for, for some time now. And uh, I feel like you all do a fantastic job kind of democratizing that high level knowledge that in the past has been gated off for institutional finance. And so as a follower of each of your works, I think it kind of makes sense for us to kind of kick off with Darius, as I know he has some specific outlooks for Q2, as his models kind of have been showing what might happen as we kind of tighten into a growth slowdown. And so I'll go ahead and let Darius take us away and then we'll go from there. Yeah, no, I think it's as, as simple as this and I'll, I'll kind of shut up. We're going from a state of where the economy is kind of slowing at a slow pace to by the end of the second quarter and, and certainly by the beginning of the third quarter, it'll start to look like the economy is slowing at a more rapid pace. And the reason that's important from an asset market perspective is because risk assets and bonds, all these different asset classes tend to, you know, sort of shrug off a, a kind of, you know, slow deceleration. You know, they can handle that. They can sort of get their hands wrapped around that. What tends to create problems in asset markets, particularly from a risk asset perspective, is when that, that pace of deceleration starts to pick up. So just a couple of figures on that. You know, one of the ways we back test um, uh, all that, that we, we find that in the data, when, when the growth is slowing at what we call a zero sigma delta pace, i.e. the differential, is only a zero sigma relative to the trailing through your uh, sample, you tend to have a positive uh, annualized return in the S&P 500 of 12%. In something like Bitcoin, that positive annualized return is 134%. However, when you transition to a minus two sigma delta pace, i.e. that that the size of that differential, that change in the growth rate starts to go to a minus two sigma relative to the trailing through your sample, you go to from a you know plus 12 to a minus 30 annualized rate of return for the S&P 500 and the minus 64% rate of return for Bitcoin. So that's not to say it all has to happen in that particular window. It's just that that, that window towards the end of Q2 is where we're gonna start to see these dynamics start to occur. And obviously the back half of the year is gonna have a lot of problems from that perspective. Wow, you make us happy. <laughs> that's <what I> <laughs> Thanks for that. It's our first one, we'll get better folks. <laughs> we wow. gotta ruin the party, Darius, thanks. Yeah. 
Yeah, Alf, if you, I know you had some, also some uh, particular thoughts on similar things, especially, you know, I read your recent uh, kind of newsletter coming out after the, the recent FOMC and you thought things were sounding pretty hawkish, even though I know they're not everybody interpreted it that way. So I'd be curious your thoughts kind of building off what Darius was saying there. I think in December we had an interview with Darius on uh, Real Vision, I think, after the press conference from Powell. And we started it with that joke where uh, the interviewer asks, actually, you know, journalists ask questions to, a, I think it was a baseball representative, Darius. I'm not sure about the joke itself, but they ask him questions and he, he, go, he only goes with the same reply for 12 minutes. And that was basically Powell at the press conference. You know, they, they asked him anything they could to try and make him have a slightly more dovish assessment of the economic situation. And he didn't budge at all. They asked him about participation rate. They asked him about real wages. They asked him about anything that could signal that his rosy assessment was to be taken a bit, you know, with a pinch of salt. And he simply said, I don't have salt in my kitchen. I'm hawkish. I don't care. Uh, there is no pinch of salt here. I mean, give me a break. It's the booming economy, et cetera, et cetera. And from there, the situation only, and, and let's say the conviction from the Federal Reserve only increased. Have a look at the latest um, summary of economic projections. They basically explicitly talk about hiking rates above neutral rate. They have an estimate for it being around 2.5%, slightly below that. They want to bring federal funds rate to 2.75%. Keep it there for two years. That's what the SCP says. And despite that, for two years, they expect unemployment rate to be 3.5%. I mean, it, it's perhaps the most aggressively positive uh, outlook I've ever seen from the Federal Reserve on the U.S. economy going forward. They might be right about it, but what's important is that markets, as Darius also highlighted before, work as per expectations and pricing, right? And so the expectations on the bond market now are now adjusted. They are starting to adjust as well on the growth outlook. At least some GDP projections have been cut here and there. But the earnings growth projected in the S&P is still 9%. In the Eurostock, is still 8% for this year. So I have to back my friend Darius here in assuming that from a macro perspective, some of the underlying assumption when it comes to earnings growth might still be relatively rosy in this environment. And the Federal Reserve commitment is higher and higher, even now that the public opinion is picking up this curve inversion story. Started talking about it three months ago. I look at slightly different metrics than the Treasury yield curve. Those metrics had already inverted. Now the Treasury curve is already inverted all over the place. So public opinion is like, oh, okay, so this is happening. So they start asking some questions, and Powell is already front loading them by saying, I don't know, guys, it's the 18 month forward, three months minus three months. So, which basically means give me six to nine months to hike and push this 18 month forward window into 2024. And then also this metric will invert. But in the meantime, I'll be talking about 18 months forward, three months against three months. So you don't understand what I'm saying. And the chart looks very steep. And please don't ask me any questions because I need to hike. That's basically what he's saying. And, you know, you got to respect that. I mean, the guy set basically is able to influence the euro dollar short term part of the curve the long end of the curve reacts to other drivers and you're seeing that in inversions indeed but when it comes to short term borrowing costs well it can really um tighten or loosen them up so you got to listen to the guy that's basically my big picture takeaway mm-hmm. yeah awesome so you know, a lot of these kind of dynamics, especially this inverting, right? It, it can be hard to time, right? The dynamics of timing these things can be very difficult. And uh, that's why I would kind of be curious to see if we Brent could help us out with that timing dynamic with maybe some of the metrics he's seeing. But before we do, it's, I want to give you guys, uh, Brent and Imran, a chance to maybe add on to your macro outlook before we kind of jump into that timing dynamic. Go ahead, Brent. 
Uh, Imran's imminent more, imminently more qualified to comment on the macro stuff than I am. I'll say that. Uh, we're, I'm watching, you know, the oil prices here rising up. I think the, the mortgage rates are higher. Uh, and so I just feel like anecdotally it's, it's getting tougher out there, uh, at least here in the U.S. And I imagine it's the same way in Europe. So um, you guys are sort of, I guess, backing up sort of my, my feelings, which my feelings don't count for anything. So I'm going to turn them back to Imran here. All right, mate. Uh, thanks for that. Um, I mean, look, clearly we had a big squeeze off the bottom, right? So market got super bared up. It, you didn't have to be a genius to think there was squeeze risk there. And a lot of people have flagged that. But problem when you're at those points where everyone's bearish, there's also crash risk at the same time, squeeze risk and crash risk, right? So we had FOMC, volatility came down, we got our squeeze. Now what happens next? Right, that's the big question. Um, typically, heading into Easter, I would say seasonality is typically for index vol to go lower into Easter. OK, uh, we've got earnings season kicking off in a couple of weeks. People tend to focus more on their micro stories and their earnings than they do for the broader index. Right. We're still in a bit of a special situation because we've got the war going on. But it seems like that's getting well, there's certainly hope that that's getting de-escalated, whether that actually plays out or not remains to be seen. Right. Uh, but I think there's a risk over the next two weeks that vol continues to grind its way lower. Right. Um, I think Q2 guidance is going to be very, very key. Uh, our company is going to basically see consumer demand, you know, coming off, um, what they're saying about commodity prices, those sort of things. How, how is the guidance going to look and how a company is going to trade post said guidance or said earnings, basically. Right? I think that's going to give us a signal into, you know, where we head from here. Um, it's really hard not to be macro bearish, right, on all the things that the, the boys have said. Um, and from a vol perspective, you know, I'd expect vol to start to catch a, a bit of a bid towards the end, middle to end of April, as people look to the FOMC in early May, 50 bit hike getting priced in, potentially QT on the table, and another 250 bit hikes coming straight down the pipe in the next few meetings. So I don't see vol, like I've said before, when me and Brent have spoken, I don't see vol going that much lower. I think VIX at mm -hmm. 18 to 20 is kind of your short term floor now. Um, and then, you know, you got to, you got to, well, we'll talk more about hedges later, but I think you got, you got to be looking forward into June and September and thinking about how you position for that inevitable gravity that's going to kick in basically. So yeah, I, I'd like to add one quick thing on that vol squeeze. I mean, we talked about how the, there were so many put positions coming into January and February. And so when the Ukraine situation hit the market, you know, it, it didn't really do much, right. Even though you would think, Hey, we're going to add geopolitical risk on top of whatever the fed is going to do. So the market held into there and obviously we squeezed as a function of, you know, the Fed sort of clarity in a way you could argue, but also OPEX. And, and what I want to bring in here is everyone always talks about there's these two historical lows in the market. One was in December of 2018. There was a massive put expiration. And then in March of 2020, there was also a humongous put expiration. And a lot of the times when I bring those two dates up, people go, well, Mnuchin came out in December of 2018 and, and called the banks and did whatever he did to get, you know, people feeling better about the monetary fiscal policy, whatever. And we got a rally. And the same thing in March of 2020, right? Powell on the, on that same Monday that the market bottomed came out and, 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 you know, implemented some policies and tools, right. To help support the market. And so people have always said, well, maybe it wasn't just the options market, but this time around was to me, there's a complete opposite thing, right? The fed came out and was more hawkish, uh, but we still got this rally. So to me, that's like, look, the options market is three for three there. And, and then this last time you didn't get the same Fed support, right? Market support or the Fed put didn't, didn't really kind of get, you know, raised to a higher strike or anything like that. So um, that was kind of an interesting thing, you know, just kind of dovetailing us with, with what you were saying there, Imran. 
Thanks, Brent. Yeah, and you're not seeing the big put. You're not seeing the big put buying coming in yet for June, I guess, right? No, no. The 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 positioning and puts now. I mean, there was large put positions. We had we measured on a delta basis, right? So you can look at if you measure the the put delta in the market, the put delta was as negative as it's been going back through the 2018 and 2020 crisis, despite the fact that the markets. I mean, I guess it was sort of a similar drawdown to 2018, but clearly 2020 was a worse drawdown in March, right? So the deltas were maxed out in terms of how big puts were. Those all got cleared out. And now there's not really, I mean, with the market right around 4,600, the first decent sized puts are at 4,300. So there's a pretty good air pocket that, you know, you could just sort of fill and flush right back down into that level. And I don't think it would take much, right? Um, with VIX at 18 or 20, Realize ball is still a little bit higher. Obviously, it's up, it's up around 25, but this is a better time to buy puts because they're a little bit cheaper, you could argue, obviously. Uh, and people need them, I think, whereas before they were full on puts. We were fully hedged in February. We're no longer fully hedged due to the, the rally and expiration. Um, and so. Darius, Darius yeah. made a great point in his latest, um, I think, around the horn or something, right? Talking about people de risk, they needed less puts, arguably. Yeah. Right. Mm. So that's why the bid in vol got taken out because you're just like, you know what? Fed is hawkish as they're going to be. Get me out of this market and then I don't need protection anymore. So maybe there's some of that going on as well. That's a, that's a great, great point. Could and be. To, and to Brent, to follow up, to piggyback on Brent's point, part of the reason that that sort of, you know, that dynamic, you already had the Fed, you know, banging on the top of the market with the, you know, the change in their policy. But underneath the surface, if you look at it on a coincident or lagging indicator basis, growth is still extremely robust. Now it's becoming less robust by the day in terms of the incremental news we're getting, but in terms of how that all flows through to earnings and people's demand for hedging activity, it's, you know, things are still fine here. We still have this window of time and time is a very critical factor in terms of what we do for a living. There's still a window of time for investors not to feel the need to go rush to put on all those hedges because what do hedges do? They just decay returns unnecessarily, right? Right. Yeah. Very fair point, Darius. The other thing I think that people tend to always forget is that professional investors and large risk takers, they think in probabilities. And so before the Fed, uh, of course, you had a certain distribution in mind with a certain market neutral implied probabilities and you had tails, right? And then Powell came to the, to the wires and effectively removed the unknown unknowns for most of the, of, the, of the left tail and right tail. The only thing he didn't really clear was quantitative tightening as in how that's going to be implemented, exactly what kind of duration has the private sector to absorb, what kind of collateral, um, let's say, the private sector needs to take against how many, you know, how much drain of the reserve repo facility. And all of these details haven't been discussed. But apart from that, all the unknowns, unknowns have been basically removed after the Fed meeting. So obviously, if you're a risk parity fund, then you see, you know, you have had this large throwdown and the Federal Reserve has come to the wire and effectively told you what they're really going to do. And with which with, with conviction, you can reassess as well your long term perspectives and perhaps be able to take some more risks now that at least the unknown unknowns have been removed from the tails. That's probably also part of the explanation, although probably Brent's take on, on the on the option market makes more sense than the unknown unknown macro theory. I come back with data at this point. And can I make one, one very quick point? Let's yeah. not forget that institutional investors' job is to manage money and generate returns. Mm -hmm. So unless there's a reason for the people whose money they're managing to take their ball and go home, i.e. raise cash, they're going to put money to work and try to generate yeah. returns. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to ask you guys, I mean, there's there's a chart going around that shows the spread right. between how the TLT is performed in the SPX and, and so for a interest rate sort of uh, ignoramus like me. 
that looks like a really big spread. Clearly, the, the rates are moving quite a bit. Is this a situation where everyone knows basically what Powell's going to do? So they just front run that and, and basically, you know, push out of all their, you know, adjust faster than the market in terms of, of their interest rate assessments? That is stick it first. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Huge. So I got I got a I got a, a, a bevy of things that I think is going on with respect to the interest rate market. So on the short end of the curve, obviously, every incremental data point we get in the direction of hawkish inflation data continues to push up Fed funds futures, overnight index swap uh, pricing, all that stuff that would say the power the Fed's going to do more. From a long end of the curve perspective, I think it has as much to do with what the Fed is talking about from a forward guidance perspective as it has to do with the changing inflation dynamics in Europe. I think this is probably one of the biggest missed stories of 2022. I certainly missed it. I think everybody missed it, quite frankly. Otherwise, the European inflation uh, surprise index wouldn't be at an all-time high looking like Bitcoin in a bull market. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's one of the truly more remarkable charts out there in macro right now. And I think what's happened in Europe, and obviously we just got March inflation data uh, for Germany, France, Spain, Italy. They're all at all-time highs. They're all destroying consensus estimates still to this day. And I think part of the reason for that is obviously Europe's more exposed to the lack you know to the changing dynamics with respect to russia ukraine and the energy imports and all that stuff but there's also the fiscal likely fiscal policy response over there as well in terms of handing out checks to support uh consumers uh consumption there's also the response in terms of energy infrastructure defense spending all that stuff so that's catalyzed a massive repricing not only on the short end of the curve in, in europe in terms of ois forwards but also on the long end of the curve in the boon market oat market etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's had a real meaningful impact in terms of repricing global sovereign debt higher because those are all some of the lowest rates in the deepest bond markets now, i would say uh, brent that um people always tend to confuse those two markets um the short end of the bond market and long end of the bond market are obviously driven by very different forces mm -hmm. so the long end of the bond market is basically driven by structural forces uh, demographics productivity technology debt levels etc cetera, etc cetera. that's for the long-term trend then obviously those have to be traded cyclically too right there is a future on 30-year bonds and then there is tlt and people are going to dump and buy those right so there are also cyclical um, aspects and in that the federal reserve has actually if you ask me from a macro perspective even helping anchoring these levels of long-term bond yields uh, around two and a half percent and not higher than that because the long-term nominal um let's say neutral rate one can argue in the us is estimated to be around about two percent two to two twenty five percent and if the federal reserve effectively tells you look we're gonna tighten it very very fast now because we have declared inflation as enemy one two and three and four and five and we don't care about anything else uh, because we think the labor market will remain super tight even if we hike above neutral rate then they're basically telling the bond market all right guys take all your structural trends that drive your long-term third-year bond to be stuck at two and a half percent and be very convinced that if the federal reserve now tightens in this cycle very fast they basically will have to revert back at some point then you'll be sucked in into considering your structural drivers of third-year bond deals rather than anything else so it basically reduces the uncertainty around these mm. estimates of long-term drivers that tend to drive 30-year bond deals. It's just a different market. And it's a market also from a flow perspective dominated by so-called uh, elephant real money. So those are pension funds. Those are large corporates with edging needs. Those are uh, asset managers that have a, in most cases, like a pension fund in Europe, for example, but also in the US. In the U.S. now, a pension fund has a coverage ratio of 105%, which it never had since 2007. It basically means the market value of their assets is higher than the discounted value of their liabilities, which 
you know, it's never been the case as interest rate kept on dropping over time, the value of the pension fund liabilities went up and the asset price returns didn't make up for that. So you had a, a coverage ratio very often below 100, but now that's above 100. And because most of these pension funds are still short duration, they have very long liabilities to serve with a huge amount of delta, Brent. And then obviously they'll try to hedge some of that from an interest rate perspective to hedge some of that, but they will never hedge it fully. In Europe, some of these pension funds are hedged on interest rate only at 30%. I estimate 1.2 billion per basis point interest rate gap in Europe. Try again, 1.2 <laughs> billion per basis point DVO1 gap, duration That's gap. That's a hell of a DVO1, dude. <laughs> but obviously, obviously, they make up for that because on the asset side, they buy credit, they buy high yield, they buy equity. So from a return perspective, they're fine. From an interest rate perspective, if interest rates keep dropping, they're, they're less fine. So now that you have these interest rates also repricing, they structurally have a need to hedge that interest rate, right? So they will be buying that. They just will be buying that. Same for insurance companies. It's sticky flows. And those sticky flows are also driven by an aging population uh, and, and structurally high and unproductive level of debt. And so it's, it's always... People tend to mix up the discussion about cyclical and structural drivers of interest rates a lot, and they tend to talk about a, a euro dollar uh, EDZ2, like if they talk about a TLT, and they are a completely different animal. Mm -hmm. Amazing explanation. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. No, so you, you guys have kind of, you know, touched on sort of the, the next thing I'm curious about, you know, um, Alf mentioned he doesn't really look at the the yield curve as much as something else, which I believe is the overnight index swap, if I, right. if I recall correctly. I know Darius mentioned he has a bevy of things that he's keeping an eye on. Brent obviously mentions his TLT chart. And so I would just be curious, you know, if you had to identify the specific signals you're you're tracking and keeping an eye on to know that these theses that you've laid out are, are playing out as you expect, what would those signals be? And uh, on a selfish front, I, I'm actually specifically curious if what you guys think about the equities could possibly be transitioning to maybe a forward-looking dis discounting mechanism now that QE is sort of, kind of leaving the markets. We can go with Darius. We keep the flow going, and then you guys can go back to letting Sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll break this out by asset class or by style of asset. There's risk assets, and let's call it defensive assets, although the treasuries have been far from defensive uh, year-to-date. Um, on the risk asset front, in terms of trying to identify a state where we're likely to head into a, a higher volatility state, more realized volatility, uh, lower legs down um, in terms of equity, crypto, et cetera, you know, there's sort of a, a compendium of signals that we look at. Uh, we call them our hashtag GTFO signals. You can infer what that means. Uh, we'll, we'll say get the freak out for now for, for all our moms watching at home. Um, but, you know, so the, the sort of two that really matter as it relates to what do you need to raise cash? Do you need to take down your overall risk uh, profile with respect to markets? Uh, there's one not what we call our, our, our rolling stop risk. That's when the market really starts to get de incrementally defensive. It tends to do that um, ahead of um, ahead of big drawdowns, and and how we track that is looking at month over month sharp ratios across you know a compendium you know 50, 60 U.S. equity sectors and style factors. And once the dispersion between upper and lower quintiles really starts to price in a negative outlook, then you typically see that reflected in markets in in subsequent weeks and months. Uh, so that's kind of the rolling stop race. We really haven't exited uh, the, the negative signal there, but what has not triggered is what we call our sudden stop risk, which obviously is a, a little bit more of an alarm bell. Um, that's where you have what we call our four horsemen of market risk. There's a, a VVIX fix ratio, high beta, low beta ratio. These are these are equity ratios, um, high beta stocks relative to low beta stocks. There's a, a value to growth ratio and small cap, mega cap ratio. Typically, when you have three of those four ratios, bearish from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal and also making new lows on a trending basis, you're in a market crash. This is just 
there's not much uh, insights that would suggest you're not in a market crash, you know, pulling the charts back. So that's what we're waiting and watching for to understand that, hey, look, a lot of this market risk that we anticipate as a function of the evolving economic outlook, um, it's now here to price in and we need to do something about it. Obviously not, we don't need to do anything about that yet. From a bond market perspective, I think the most important dynamic that could actually start to wrestle or disentangle the current state of positive covariance between stocks and bonds right now they're they're correlating their you know stocks go up bonds go up stocks go down bonds go down what i expect to disentangle that are twofold one a more a realization of a faster slowdown in growth um and again as i mentioned that window of time where we'll start to see that occur again doesn't this mean it'll be finished by then but we'll start to see that occur in the june through sort of august data you know that's kind of the window where we'll see that speak to pick up speak up to the downside in our opinion or at least in our model's opinion um, so we'll see number one there, this faster slowdown of growth will start to wrestle bonds away from stocks, we expect. And then secondarily, when does inflation momentum get back below a level that would sort of suggest that, you know, it's okay to have bonds as a, as a, as a defensive hedge in your portfolio? Typically what happens is when CPI is running north of 5%, we, we've backtested this all the way back to the 70s. When CPI is north of 5%, stocks and bonds tend to have that positive correlation. When CPI is below 5% stocks and bonds tend to have that inverse correlation. So there's sort of two ways you can track that. One, headline CPI. Our model has headline CPI not getting below 5% to really the end of the year. So that's a problem from that perspective, but it could be better if you look at it on a month-on-month -month annualized basis or a three-month annualized basis. And when we start to see headline CPI break down in that regard, because that'll be a leading indicator for the year-over-year, -year, um, that could potentially be a positive uh, signal for bonds. That'll be the earliest we see a positive signal for bonds. So who knows when that'll happen, just given all the geopolitical dynamics. I, I, I could say, I mean, from the options perspective, the things that we're looking for, um, you know, typically we see 30 days out is the max sort of window that we have. And in this recent rally, we saw the, obviously puts all get kind of wiped out, but the, the call buying in the S&P didn't really seem to pick up at all. Uh, which to me is a little bit of a concern. And what we did see was like a lot of flow into very speculative garbage short-term names, right? So if you look at the Robin Hoods and all these other sort of, you know, meme stocks, those things had unbelievable returns over the last few days. Clearly that can't be a, a macro driven, you know, thesis there with higher rates and whatever else it may be. So um, there was this speculative risk behavior that really picked up and I think kind of took us this extra leg higher. And I didn't see sort of long-term structural, hey, I like the look of this you know, market now. Um, and, and so it's sort of like, I used this analogy with theirs before, like when you're on the the, the Virgin Galactic doing your zero gravity thing and, and you, the rocket takes off and you get into zero gravity and you're floating around and like, this feels really good, uh, but the, the rocket's got to come back down to earth, you know, at some point here. So um, that's sort of how I see the options position, which, you know, as you sort of head to Q2 or not that far away, I want, I'd like to see more calls, right? More support for the market. And it just doesn't seem to be there at the moment, which to me is also a sentiment indicator. Oh. So I've been basically bearish risk assets for since the beginning of the year. Worked okay, then worked much. I was lucky because the war came in and I can't predict the war. Um, there are two trades. I, I Rather than say what I... Um, think it's going to happen as a former risk taker. I always say what I have on because that's the only thing that matters. So what I have on, it's um, uh, a running position since the beginning of the year, actually, which is a flattener in the US curve between two year and 10 year. I do it via futures. So I adjust for duration if necessary. Uh, so I buy an, an X amount of contract 
to make it duration weighted. So the only thing I care about is that the curve between two year and 10 year gets flatter over time. That's only what I care about. That's, I don't care about the direction in this case of yields and how does it get flatter as long as it does. Uh, I keep on running that because I think Powell has been very, very clear that he, he is not budging. Even when faced with questions <clears throat> about the, the yield curve, he doesn't really care about um, other things that are not inflation. And so uh, that is a position I think you can keep on having on. It carries negatively, so you'll have to obviously be you know wary about that too. So far, the PNL has way overwhelmed the negative carry, so that's not a big deal. I want to keep it on. And the other is in Europe, where I think Italian government bonds are very exposed to the current environment, where Darius said it before. I mean, inflation keeps on surprising on the upside. And while Europe obviously will have a negative growth shock, very, very visible from the Ukraine-Russia war, I think you know there are serious risks of recession despite you know economic a sharp economic slowdown that doesn't turn into recession by this much it's still a sharp economic slowdown i mean all this obsession about labels it's a recession or not honestly risk assets don't really care if the number is negative zero one or zero for the quarter over quarter growth so it's going down but the, the ecb will be faced at some point with very tough decisions because public opinion at some point will pick it up. I mean, inflation in Spain is now 10% year on over year. Uh, in France, it's very high. In Italy, in Germany, everywhere. And so there is a chance that the government and council might become uh, more wary about this. And actually, you might argue, if there are some resolutions of the Russia-Ukraine story, they might become even more, you know, uh, they might even have a more compelling story to tighten monetary policy faster as, you know, they will project that the situation gets better from a, you know, supply bottleneck and, consumer confidence perspective. If they do tighten more aggressively, then I think Italian government bonds are pretty exposed. So I have a position where I'm short BTP future and long the bond future. So here again, I don't care about the direction of, of yields in each direction. I just care about the spread between Italian government bond and, and German government bonds. Italy has been you know, helped uh, in terms of spread compression by direct QE and the indirect effect that QE has by compressing volatility and you know reducing spreads across the board and injective bank reserves in all these bank treasuries in Europe that then at some point want to try and put some money to work, right? To rebalance their asset portfolios. And now you're going to be doing the exact same process all the way back. So the I was also short risk assets, Russell, investment, uh, high yield bonds. Um, they, they had basically profited from the good move year to date, but I use basically a systematic approach to um, trailing profit targets and trailing stops. So when I put a position on, it always has a systematic size based on the implied and realized volatility of the position. And if it works my way, then good. If it reaches a target, I'm going to move the trailing stops and the trailing profit target to make it run if it continues running. But in this case, as I, as I was basically caught off guard by the move against me, it got stopped out, which means I go back and take profit and I just take it away from the books. Because despite the underlying macro story, I still think it works for the next quarter. If price action isn't validating my narrative for long enough, then who am I to challenge that? So I, I normally use a, a systematic approach, uh, which I think helps me sleep at night as well. At least I know why do I have the position on and where do I stop it and where do I move the next profit target it's, it's, if it's going the right way. So went okay for a couple of quarters and now I only have these two rates position on in the US and in Europe where I feel relatively confident about and the price action is still validating the macro narrative. Thanks, Alf. I mean, I, from my perspective, I think I've got more questions than answers to this question, right? In that, you know, does the credit market finally start to give us more of a signal right now that QE is starting to, or well, it's not quite done yet, but if we do get some sort of QT kicking off, 
then a bit following on from your point, right? BTPs versus bun spread is a form of credit, right? Um, yeah. Do we start to see signs in the credit market of that weakness first before equities roll over again, if they are going to, right? So I'd be looking at the credit market to see if that starts to underperform the rally, um, if we were to get a rally over the next month or so. Um, I would say there's risk on the China side. Um, they promised to ease. We haven't seen any of it yet. Darius has mentioned Shibor needs to drop by about two, 300 basis points if they're really going to follow through. Um, you know, th you need to watch that, right? How is the yen move recently impacting China? Is there a risk of a China deval? Because if there is, 2015-16 playbook is, is not pretty, basically, no. right? So I'd be looking... Uh, the yen market i'll be looking at and then just uh, if you look across the vol spectrum and, and skew skew's been relatively flat and that was because we were at elevated levels of vol um now as you know so when when vol's elevated typically people buy hedges that are put spreads and things like that so they they don't want to pay up for that really expensive downside right mm -hmm. if we start to see a compression of vol back into that kind of 18 area or less on the vix then Vol starts to look cheaper again. Maybe people start buying those downsides because they're actually a bit more affordable. And you start mm -hmm. to see skew on a relative basis to vol start to go up. That would make me potentially a little bit more bearish. And then just in general, like the way vol is propagating through asset classes, right? You had a load of commodity vol when Russia kicked off, right? That's dissipating, still elevated, but it's come down a lot. Then we had a shit ton of vol in the short-term rates markets. I mean, we're seeing regular three to four sigma moves in two-year rates. I mean, it's just yeah. every week. Yeah, it's insane. And now we finally started to see it filter through to FX markets, right? Again, a four sigma move in dollar yen. We had a big move in euro when Russia kicked off initially. So we are starting to see quite consistent volatility propagating through asset classes. That in itself to me is a signal of fragility, right? It's probably a little bit of an early signal. So we might need to wait two months, who knows? But that in itself worries me basically, right? So I would, if anyone wants to follow on from any of those points, but that's kind of what I'm seeing. I, there's a there's a great tool on the CME um, website. It's a liquidity tool and they show you the liquidity across a whole bunch of different asset classes. Uh, it's very useful to look at. And I would say the interesting thing from what I watch is the e-mini liquidity, uh, that's the ESE mini futures. That liquidity was, I mean, the lowest has been in, in many years uh, over the last couple of weeks. That has post sort of fed, that liquidity has has uh, pumped up a little bit. So it does appear that, you know, that is going to help the market, obviously. Anytime there's less liquidity, that's that's uh, that has the volatility. Um, and I would just say that, again, from our options perspective, we think what Imran just said, that the volatility has then come down towards that lower bound. I mean, you know, the VIX is hitting that 18 area. Um, and so, now makes a lot more sense to look at downside protection as opposed to you know in the heat of it during you know uh end of february and early march where you could buy a put but the, the payoff likelihood of that put you know alpha talks about probabilities like the probability of actually making money on any puts that you bought in late february early march was was pretty much near zero so uh so downside hedges are more more attractive now for sure brand backing you up on this on this um liquidity so I have a few friends still uh, I talk to in the bond market taking, you know, trading the hundreds of millions. They also refer to the same drop in liquidity, pretty aggressive, they say. So literally the bid ask spreads I was used to pay to trade 100 million boons or 100 million treasuries, they nearly doubled since I left. So that's four months ago, basically. Um, 
and they tell me it's really difficult to execute trades that absorb a lot of balance sheet from uh, the market making community. So it seems really the um, warehousing capacity is not picking up at all. Um, and the other thing Imran said, which is interesting, is the yen move. Um, from a macro perspective, Imran, it seems to me that many central banks out there are very wary about inflation expectations and the, and the feed through from the FX channel to inflation expectations. So if you have a weaker currency, domestic currency, then there is a chance that this inflation expectation an anchor on the upside, and they really don't want to see that in this environment. So what they tend to do is they tend to signal a pretty aggressive forward guidance, even for European standards now, to sort of defend a bit their currency against the dollar or the euro or the next trading partner, right? All central banks, except one, which is the Bank of Japan. Mm. The Bank of Japan has basically never seen any inflation or inflation expectations for the last 20 years. And it seems to me like they're like, what, what? You want to throw at some inflation at me? Sure, be my guest. Uh, I can take it. That's fine. And um, obviously, I mean, fiscal year end in Japan is a very large event, a uh, large liquidity event, large flow event, and also the you know, trades uh, done today in Japan settle into the new quarter. So they also are worth for taking new risk into the new fiscal year from Japanese investors. And a lot of the move might also be due uh, to, to some of these large flows. There is something macro to be said. If there is one central bank that is, you know, fighting less hard than others, not to import inflation from an FX channel is probably the Bank of Japan. And Japan is paramount important for exporting capital through the world. Uh, I mean, they're a surplus country and they, they have, have a, a history, 20, 30 years history of taking risks in other jurisdictions. They are large buyers of French government bonds, German government bonds, large buyers of US treasuries. And they're also very good at FX hedging. Uh, they roll it, they hedge normally on a three-month rolling basis. Sometimes they extend the hedge and they take it off. So it's, it's important to watch uh, the Japanese yen and the stunts from both uh, the BOJ and um, the fiscal authority in Japan importing inflation that might actually have some um, repercussions in global macro but is it a case of you know some people are calling for yen to 150 right or let's say it goes to 130 even is that is that bullish risk assets because it creates a carry trade type dynamic or is that just destabilizing because china look at it and be like okay we need to do something on our side i don't know which way it is Right. What do you think? That that you said it before. Moves are important not only in the direction but in the speed against expectations. So if you go to 150, I think <laughs> then you are moving a bit too fast, too quick, and this convex sort of reactions in in effects or rates normally scare both the risk community and policymakers. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. when I had the chance to ask some of these policymakers some questions, the only thing they really don't want to see is to end up in the tails of the distributions. They, they don't want to be remembered to be the guys that had the yen collapse 40% in three months. You know, they want to gradually import some inflation. It might be a macro game, but it needs to be gradual. And so uh, in the playbook of these guys, if I have to be honest. Gotcha. <laughs> Not to get off topic, but uh, you, Imran, you said a couple things that really resonated with me that I think are worth, you know, at the bare minimum, briefly unpacking for the listener. Um, and they seem sort of uh, counterintuitive, but not counterintuitive. They seem like they're uh, kind of fighting each other, which is one, on one hand, we're kind of in a state from a vol market perspective, as Brent mentioned, where you could actually start to see a bid and skew come back. However, on the other hand, we have this sort of, you know, seasonality dynamic where, you know, you, you shouldn't see that occur. Like, can you walk us through like what what like kind of wins out generally speaking on, on those two metrics? I mean, it's yeah, like I say, it's if you're looking for hedges, right? You you have to say right, is the absolute level of the vol cheap enough to buy or not, right? Mm -hmm. 
if if it's not, then you're going to be doing things like put spreads, things like risk reversals, stuff like that, right? So so then it's a question of what's the what's the upside squeeze risk? Am I comfortable selling a call option, or do I think we could go through the highs, right? So if if you thought that there was squeeze risk, then you'd be doing put spreads. If you thought there wasn't squeeze risk, you'd be selling calls and buying puts, and that would be it. So those two are completely opposite. One of them's a buy of skew, the risk reversal, and the other one's a sell of skew, which is the put spread, right? So what we were doing when the market was near the lows is we were put spread buyers if we were doing hedges, basically, right? Which is a skew sale, right? Mm -hmm. Now we've had a 500-point rally off the bottom. Who who really in this room or any other room thinks we're going to smash through the highs, right? It's pretty unlikely given the macro headwinds. So you're going to be much more comfortable selling call options to fund put protection, which will be a bid to skew, basically, which I think is going to happen over coming months. Thank you. Interesting. Should be noted today is the uh, JP Morgan collar trade, right? So, uh, I mean, that's systematic, but that's going off today, which is selling the 3 to 5% out of money call and buying the put spread. So. Brent, it always fascinated me. Uh, there's another Twitter account who tweets about that often, which is Andy Constant, Dumped Spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about this dynamic, but I, I think for the listener, it's also interesting to, un- to if you can unpack it a bit. I mean, it's even for me very interesting to get an understanding of what do these guys do from a systematic perspective. Yeah, so that by selling the so they're long equities basically in, in different forms in the fund, right? So they just want to hedge that position. So they sell the out of the money call, as Imran mentioned before, and then they buy a put spread. And it's in the prospectus. It's something that they just do every quarter. They just roll it. Right. And where it gets interesting is when one of those strikes start to go in the money and or as we approach expiration. So if you think about the last few months, uh, the put that they owned was the forty five ten put in the SPX that expires today. Uh, and so when the market was starting to sell off, as you push through that 4510 strike, you had about 45,000 puts uh, that start to pick up in value, right? And that can accelerate volatility to the downside. And in a similar fashion, if you modeled out how that put decayed over the last few days, it's pretty remarkable that that put just got smashed as wall dropped. And as the market rallied, you had 45,000 contracts that went from very deep in the money, right? Or two or 300 points in the money to suddenly over the course of a week, basically, they lost all of their value, right? Uh, and it's kind of at the point that those things really started to drain out of value that the market kind of lost some of its speed. If I mean, S&P more or less has pinned 4,600 over the last three, four days. Our volatility model went from looking at, hey, we're, we're going to get one and a half percent moves per day to 60 basis points is what we've been seeing over the last few days. And a lot of that is just the fact that this put, it was a big put, it got crushed. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things we model now is, well, where are the big strikes? And, and a, on a percentile basis, we now rank them. 4,600 has a little bit of size to it, but outside of 4,600, there's no other big strikes anymore. So today they're going to add this new collar. They're going to sell something, you know, north of 40, I don't know, 48 or 4,900, I guess, on the call side. And then they're going to buy a bigger uh, put spread, you know, three to 5% down. And so if the market starts to drop down towards that strike, gamma will pick up on that put spread and it should accelerate a drawdown. In a similar way, if we rally up into that strike, um, we actually think that that helps to suppress the market in some ways a little bit because you got to figure dealers are going to be long that call strike because JP Morgan sold it. So the hedging flows should help to suppress volatility and, and kind of hold the market in a little bit, support the market in a way, uh, those flows if the market you know rallies up into that strike. Um, so yeah. as I said, in, in general, it doesn't mean a whole lot until we start to trade up into one of those levels. Yes, I would add, exactly. the only thing I'd add there is like, because that's such a systematic, well-known flow that happens every quarter, people front run it. 
So, and, and because of put spread collar, it's a Vegas sale, right? It's a sell of implied volatility mm -hmm. that hits the street because that put spread, whilst it's got some vol on it, the call's got the overwhelming amount of vol on it, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so dealers will be probably sellers of vol into that date because they know they're going to get given some back, basically. So, some of this compression that we've seen on the VIX over the last two weeks may have been people pre-positioning, getting shipping some vol out the door because they know they're going to get stuffed in it, basically. Right. So, I think okay. that could signal the kind of short-term bottom in vol, or we're getting close to that level, maybe since that flow gets absorbed. Yeah. Something to watch out for. Great addition, there. Thanks so much. Super fascinating, and uh, I know uh, on on the Twitter we've been eyeing the community what they've been thinking about this call coming up, and people were specifically curious about the J.P. Morgan trade. So appreciate Al bringing that up. And you know, before we kind of move on here, I'd be curious to know something Imran alluded to is I think it's safe to say everyone here is kind of keeping an eye on the bear signals. But you know, what if we're wrong, right? You know, Al likes to think in probabilities as we all should. You know, what signals should we be looking out for to tell us that we've got this all wrong? So from my side, I often ask myself if I'm wrong. So I have a base case macro scenario and I try to look for risk reward trades that look okay or relatively well priced within that macro risk scenario. And then if I'm wrong, I just stop out. It's very simple. I basically have a two sigma, sorry, one and a half sigma stop out on a monthly basis. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I stop out. No questions asked. But then I ask myself questions after I stop, like, like what's wrong here? I mean, uh, what's going on? And so if I have to look for um, situations where I would get stopped out, it would mean that the, the, the U.S. Treasury curve is steepening and that credit spreads are, are, are tightening, right, given my current positions. Okay, so that means that I'm either very wrong in the state of the cycle we're in, which means the underlying strength of the global economy is much, much higher than I thought, which means the Fed, that, which basically means neutral rates are higher than I think they are. And if that is the case, then as the Federal Reserve hikes and other central banks follow across the world, and they hike, let's say, Europe hikes to 0% and the Fed acts to 2 to 2.5%, then the, you know, the private sector can just take it. That's no problem. So corporates will be looking at refinancing and people will be looking at their mortgage rates at 5% and they will be saying, you know, I don't give a crap. I can actually handle that. My balance sheet is strong. My earnings are strong. Real wage growth is going up by a mile and so on and so forth. So if neutral rates are higher than the Federal Reserve hiking to 2.5%, it's still fine. It's completely fine, right? So the worst assessment can be on the fact that neutral rates are higher and therefore tightening is much less tightening than I think it is. Um, that can be one. And the other one can be that uh, Darius pointed to that before. I think it's an interesting one. The pace of change of certain dynamics is important and inflation is one of those. So obviously the Federal Reserve and ECB are saying we're going we're gonna to tighten and we have a projection for inflation to slow down. But at which pace is it going to slow down? If inflation would now start to slow down much more aggressively than anticipated in the summary of economic projections by the Fed. So by the end of the year, you have inflation at 2% rather than at 3%, round about where they expect it to be. Um, what's that going to do? It's probably going to tell them, look, we're doing a good job. I mean, we can take some uh, of our food off the, pet at the gas pedal. And if they do so, then risk assets are going to obviously thrive because you slowly transition towards a... Well, it's it's a it's a big word. It's a Goldilocks kind of thing. You don't immediately move there, but in Darius's quadrants, for example, you start to slowly transition to a slowing inflation and it's still decent growth quadrant, which is a completely different quadrant where actually, you know, the trades I talked about before don't work. 
So it's, mm-hmm. it's the pace of inflation that I'm looking for, the reaction function of central banks and neutral rate. If neutral rate is, is, is much higher than I think, then my thesis is wrong. If my thesis is wrong, I just stop out. It's very simple. I'm, I'm a very often wrong. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> That's why we're here, man. We're discussing these dynamics open, uh, openly and honestly so that everyone can learn and, and kind of participate alongside us. You know, in terms of what you know, we're watching for, I think it's sort of twofold. One, with respect to the markets, and then secondly, uh, with respect to the economy. Obviously, the speed of the inflation change will be kind of the biggest driver because that's what's driving the boat from a policy perspective. Yeah, I would play it one step further. If we do see a, a sharper deceleration in inflation than what our models are currently anticipating, and our models are currently anticipating – negative delta but sticky prices which means it will inflation will persistently surprise both the fed and consistent forecast to the upside even though all three parties have inflation heading lower over the next 12 months um so if that does not occur if we actually are wrong on that and we see inflation you know kind of spiked it to the downside similarly how it spiked to the upside what's likely to happen is we'll get a sort of easing of financial conditions from a, from a consumer real income perspective you know right now we just got the february uh, uh, PCE data out of the U.S. economy, which has all the income and expenditure data. Um, and if you look at it on a per capita basis, you know, real disposable personal income in the U.S. is contracting at a minus 3.4% annualized pace. I mean, that's recessionary. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Now, if we get a big sharp slowdown in inflation, you could take that back to zero or positive, and you could actually create a much better economic state, an economic environment where growth isn't, you know, continuing to slow at a fast pace. I mean, we're going to slow regardless. U.S. economy is not a 5% economy. Potential growth in the U.S. economy is somewhere around 2%, according to our calculation. Alpha, I mean, you heard you say it's somewhere around 1.5 in terms of yours. So let's call it 1.75. We need to get back to 1.75. Um, so we will be heading back there. We just happen to believe, based on these inflation dynamics and on the policy dynamics uh, associated with those inflation dynamics, we're going to slow to a below-trend state, um, which obviously puts the recession risk on the table. So that's where we're watching economically. And then from a market perspective, obviously, the markets will front run this whole process taking place. And so one thing we do to keep ourselves honest at 42 Macro uh, is we sort of now cast the market regime separate and apart from what's happening in the economy. And right now, the market regime has been nailing the inflation trade, what we call inflation, growth slowing, inflation rising. It's been the case since November, with the exception of a kind of a three-week period of reflation from mid-December through kind of early to mid-January. Um, the market's been right on that. The market could very well transition to something that looks more like reflation or Goldilocks if all these things, if all these dynamics occur. So um, I definitely have to keep our, keep our, you know, antenna up, you know, in, in these critical kind of windows of time where the, you know, the kind of, we expect the negativity to happen because it doesn't happen in that window. It probably means the reverse is true. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to what you've just said about the inflation dynamic is um, I think we're in a strange world where we haven't seen inflation expectations so unanchored in, yeah. I don't know how many decades. Right. Yeah. So, most of us haven't traded through that where they're so far behind the curve, the central banks, and you know, no one's ever had any expectations of inflation. No one's thought inflation was going to be run away. And so they haven't changed their spending behaviors. They hadn't, we haven't seen how the consumer behaves when they think inflation is rampant, right? And and I think the Russia-Ukraine thing only exacerbates those expectations, right? So whilst we've had prices spike and come back down, the people's opinion about inflation is going to remember the spike, right? Yeah. And I think that needs to be taken into account that those expectations are going to linger and are going to then change behaviors. And that's why the central banks need to be so aggressive, right? Because this is the first time they've had to deal with this problem since the 70s, basically. Yeah. Right?
Yeah, it's a, that's a great point. And, um, you know, it kind of leads me to sort of the next kind of area, you know, Imran just touched on it and that has to do with Russia, Ukraine, right? And so a lot of these headwinds that we're talking about for markets and especially Q2, but going forward in general, they're not exactly new news, right? Coming off this extremely uh, easy money policy, it's not exactly surprising anybody that the fiscal and the monetary was going to tighten, but we have had this kind of geopolitical dynamic spring up on us. And I, I'd be curious, how do you guys see that playing into these dynamics that we've we've been discussing that's mostly been revolving around central banks? Well, uh, that's actually a good question. Um, if the way I, so let's, let's say a few weeks ago, I ran an analysis on um, inflation swaps in Europe and in the US, and I looked at cups and floors on you know several inflation products available out there. If you run this analysis, and let's take the US for simplicity, and you look at five-year tenor, so let's say five-year inflation swaps, and then you run an option analysis on those, you will see that the distribution has changed in a very interesting way. So the, the mean of the distribution has moved to the right over the last year, which makes sense. We have higher inflation expectations over the next five years. And it has moved up from 26 to 3.4%. That's CPI, so the median, uh, modal, I should say, outcome is 3.4% for the next five years, which is much higher than the Fed um, target. The most interesting part, though, is not the mean change, which is interesting per se, but it's that the distribution has become um, leptocortic. Okay, I sound very smart. It's uh, nothing else than to say that the tails are basically fatter than they were a year ago, and especially the right tail is much fatter, which basically means that people are pricing in a higher probability of pretty high inflationary prints over the next five years. And so that kurtosis changing so dramatically over the last year actually tends to tell you that people are trying to buy hedges and or pricing in for the right tail of this inflation distribution. And the mean is already 3.4% for fuck's sake, sorry for my French. And then if you're a central banker, you see that, and then you see the tail of this distribution getting fatter and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. what's going on here? And then of course, if you look at five year forward, five year, then the thing things get a bit better. So it's it's a lot front-loaded, and the Russia-Ukraine story is playing into that front-loading. But if you are a, a policymaker, a central banker, again, what you really are interested in is making sure that expectations don't become unanchored, even in the short term. And I think that that distribution I talked about explains a lot of the reaction function of the Fed, which has become more rockish, and the ECB too. And the Russia-Ukraine war just plays exactly into that. Um, it's interesting, though, that when hopefully this this geopolitical tensions unfold, uh, sorry, not unfold, but actually fade away, uh, the growth perspective, let's say the growth forecast are, on the other hand, you know, will probably pick up a bit because we'll have to assume that the consumer sector gets less hit or that, you know, we'll, we'll be able to recover better, especially in Europe. So how is that growth versus inflation forecast going to play out in the central bank policy making going forward? It's quite an interesting story. But again, at least the US has made sure to tell you that inflation is enemy one, two, three, and four, and five, and they're really not worried about growth. Uh, Ukraine, Russia, they see it really as a almost a sideshow when it comes to impact on monetary policy perspective. And I think probably somebody printed this five-year inflation swap distribution on the monitor of Powell and they told him, what's that? I mean, shall we do something about it? And the answer is that, yes, they really want to do something about it. Thanks, Alf. Thank you, Alf. It was great. Listen, dude, I know I know you might need to jump off, so feel, feel free to jump if you have to, but obviously stay as long as you can. I'll have, uh, I'll have to go. Uh, otherwise, I think my wife is going to kill me and nobody wants that. 
Um, I just want to say that I've learned a gazillion stuff in this conversation. You guys are awesome. And I hope the listeners have enjoyed some of it. And please engage with us on Twitter or any other channel. Um, we all try to be nice dudes and answer your questions. It's been and great thank having you. Having it's been a pleasure having you. Always man. a pleasure, my friend. We learned a ton from you, man. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. See you soon, guys. If you guys are okay to go on, though. We'll Absolutely. Let's keep it going. Let's do it. Aaron? Well, where are we? Uh, Darius, yeah, over to you, I guess, right? What, what do you think about the the Russia-Ukraine thing and how that feeds into your your outlook and things like that? Absolutely. So I'll be quick because to me, I think, Brent, you're probably going to have the, the biggest thought process on this because it's all to me. I think the geopolitical risk is priced into the options market more than any other market. Right. Um, and so I'll start by saying it's unlikely that things get materially worse from a sanctions perspective. You know, if you think about all the things we could have done, which is confiscate their reserves and cut off the supply of Russian natural gas to Europe and all these things like we're pretty much right there. Right. They can do a little bit more, but it's not like it can get much, much worse. To me, that's not the issue. Getting worse is not the issue. It's the persistency of how long we stay in this current state of a bifurcated global economy, particularly with respect to some of these key commodity supply chains. Um, so if you think about it, from particularly from Russia's perspective, Russia is the world's number one exporter of net gas, number two exporter of, of uh, crude oil, number three exporter of coal, right? Like if we, you know, if, if, those, if those shipments are basically embargoed or stuck in Russia, then the world has to scramble to find other supplies. And this is, it's fine for now because we do have those other supplies, but incrementally, as we, you know, we've seen today with president Biden releasing, uh, you know, effectively authorizing a, a 180 million barrel release from the SPR, we're running out of extra supplies, but we're not running out of demand for crude oil and natural grass and coal. And so as we move forward in time, markets are only going to get more and more tight. And that likely keeps a sort of floor under energy prices, um, over the intermediate term. So that that's a problem. Number two, and I think this is probably less of a problem because as, as you know, to credit all the Ukraine success thus far and defending itself and defending its its people and its territory from Russia, you know, eventually they're going to fall. Like, let's be honest here. You know, the, the Russia has enough people and enough military might to eventually win this war. It just depends on kind of what route they want to take. You know, if they want to be heinous war criminals or they just want to be like, you know, crappy Russian uh, Potemkin army, you know, <laughs> like, how do you want to get, get this job done? But they're probably going to get the job done. And so... You know, the reason I bring this up is because Ukraine is the number one world exporter of cereals, I think, or number one or number two at the behind the U.S., and then number two export of like steel and iron ore and things of that nature, or number three exporter, rather. That stuff really matters if you think about kind of like the planting season and the production season. That stuff really, th you know, you got to think about Ukrainian wheats like Kansas wheat or, or Nebraskan wheat. It's like winter wheat. The war is not going to be going on in November, December, January. You know, they'll they'll have fallen or some they'll have come to in a peace accord. So I'm not necessarily too concerned about that from the ukraine perspective but again i think the, the the energy aspect of it all it's a problem i mean it's it's there's no way we go back to the world prior to february what, what day they invaded 24th or whatever there's no way we go back to the world prior to, to to that date and and from an energy perspective and that to me is a real issue for the global economy Brent? yeah uh tough to follow that it was very good Darius. Okay. I, I would just say that there's two things that I take out of this. I have no idea what may or may not happen in Russia, and, and it's a sad situation, you know, no matter how you look at it. But yeah. what it has exposed is, you know, we're talking about kurtosis and the and distribution of prices and things like that. And, and the distribution of prices now has a much fatter tail. Um, if you look at the commodities, the way they were trading, look the way energy is trading, you know, um, and even individual stocks now, 
there's this jump risk, right? Because of a lot of these headlines and tightening supplies and these different themes. And the other thing that has sort of, I think, come back up is this idea around counterparty risk and um, how that's facilitated, right? I mean, I dropped back to GameStop and, and Robinhood kind of blew up and they suppressed trading and they cut the buy button off for people or sell button or whatever it may be. And we saw that happen again around here, right? The, the LME shut down. I mean, there, there are these different sort of risks that are now percolating that people haven't had to deal with before when the markets are functioning uh, and, you know, it was a different environment. So now you have this idea of there's the possibility of convex moves everywhere. I mean, you know, some of these ball guys you listen to, like Chris Cole was talking about, look, there, there's the nuclear options on the table now. No one's ever looked at that before, but how do you hedge that risk, right? So there's always, there's this, it is a different way to operate now, I think. Uh, and you have to manage risk differently. I mean, I think most people would say, what's, what are the odds of a five or six sigma move, you know, <laughs> last year or two years ago or five years ago? You never think about that, right? But now, man, tomorrow could be a half a dozen different places that could have that that type of volatility. Um, and, you, and you just don't know how different people are going to react. When I mean, you're talking about the yen, right? That was a surprise move. And then it has, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings and, and there's moves all over the place. So, um, so I worry about this jump risk and other asset classes infecting, you know, volatility in the equity markets uh, and and just new and different types of risk. I mean, just like MR was mentioning before, no one's had to deal with inflation before. Well, there's all these other types of risks that are associated with that now that, that you have to think about. Quick quick question before uh, Imran. You obviously track uh, index gamma and, and, and gamma for, for you know, uh, stocks. I'm not sure if you track commodity gamma, but I would imagine just based on how assets have been trading in the commodity space, it seems like dealers are short gamma in every commodity. You, know, you gain you know, leptocurtic moves to the upside, to the downside. You know, it basically looks like the stock market looks when it's, you know, dealers are short gamma, meaningfully short gamma. Um, is that something that can resolve itself just based on like news flow or whatever? Or does that typically resolve itself based on a policy change or a regulatory change? I'm actually curious. Yeah, I mean, Imran may have some better sort of comments on this. I, I would say that to, to me, the, the problem with commodities is that you just don't know when the government, like today they, they did the SPR, but they could lock prices or fix prices or mm-hmm. you know do all sorts of different things. I think in general, uh, you cannot be short convexity if you are a dealer really of any kind, right? Um, and I think that there are a lot of producers maybe that have trapped themselves. I mean, you start to think about, remember how the airlines, I think it was Southwest, right? They they had on some beautiful hedge for gas prices back in 2008 and that basically made their business, right? Because they had made so much on that hedge. So, you know, I, I think in general, there's a there has to be a bid for convexity or owning upside because you, you can't be short some of those moves if you're if you're a dealer. I mean, Imran, I'll pass the baton to you to, to Sure, sure. I'll I'll give you some context in terms of like the levels of vol in commodities and where they were and where they went and stuff just to know, right? So typically, you know, the likes of um, wheat, copper, um, nickel, these sort of things, they were like 30, 30, 40 vol commodities, right? Which is two, two and a half percent a day type movers. Um, Oil, same thing, right? Oil was kind of around 35, 40 ish as well. Then all this kicks off. I mean, wheat and nickel go into the 200 area, okay? Um, oil goes to like 80, gold goes from 15 to 30. I mean, we're talking about double to, you know, like 6x uh, in terms of the levels of vol. Mm. Now, clearly there's always a skew to the upside in commodities. It's the opposite of equity skew, right? So equity skew is always to the put side, commodity right. skew is always to the call side because of this phenomenon of supply shock risk and stuff like that. Totally. Um, I suspect the street was caught short. I mean, certainly oil, but 
you know, you got to bear in mind what's the liquidity like in these markets, right? I don't think outside of gold and oil and maybe some metals, I don't think there's a ton of liquidity in options markets. And so the realize was really driving the spike in vol rather than positioning. Okay. So you saw wheat go to 200 vol. Guess where it is now? 60, right? So, I mean, it's collapsed, right? Because the market's found some stability. A load of people have got stopped out of futures positions, options positions, you name it, because of margin calls. And now I think we've gone through this period of de-risking where the vols collapsed back down, the realized, I mean, look at the realized, I mean, oil's still moving, right? It's doing 6% in a heartbeat. Even wheat is pretty volatile. So the realize is still chopping, implies have collapsed because there's just no positioning left, I don't think, up here. And I mean, my personal view is that we're going to see the real repercussions of the deficits in supply over the next couple of months where sanctions really kick in. A lot of that sanctions have been self-sanctioning, right, and people stockpiling. But we don't know, right? We don't know how much has been taken off the market. Fertilizer is a shit show, right? Well, that, I mean, it's just good. I think the impacts are going to be really felt in the next two, three months. I think even though the, the positioning has been cleanse let's say we might see commodity prices just kind of gap higher on not a lot of volume as they reprice the reality that we are heading into and that that's kind of my base case so i've used this dip in commodities to try and lean long um the way i'm doing it because vols are still elevated in the likes of oil i'm doing it in stuff that's more liquid so that i've sold puts on oil in a size where I'm willing to take delivery, right? Obviously, I'm not taking delivery of barrels, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm making a good, I'm making a good video, yeah. We've got a tanker. But, um, so I'm selling like 80 puts sort of one to two months out because I think that's the floor in oil. I don't see it going significantly below there, and I can stomach owning that amount of the puts that I'm selling in, in the size that I'm happy to get long down there. And then I'm using that premium to buy things like call spreads, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a way I can lean long the direction of the asset. I can sell the volatility that's expensive and elevated, and I can get exposure to a fundamental view that this shit's gonna, this shit's gonna go again, right? And, and if you yeah. add to that a technical view in terms of Elliott wave and stuff, I mean, we're in a typical correction to that last wave up. Once that correction is complete, we've got another wave to retest those highs at the very least in Elliott, in Elliott wave speak. So, I, that's the way I'm positioning because part of this, the title of this episode was ways to hedge. So that's one of my ways to hedge in the commodity market. And one quick thing when you mentioned oil, it's important to know that, you know, data going all the way back to 1970s, I think we've had somewhere around seven or eight energy price spikes in terms of how we define one, which is a trailing two year change north of hundred um, percent. There's only been one out of those like seven or eight episodes that resolved itself without a material degradation in demand, like a destroying demand. And so the, the key takeaway is that this is going to continue until it destroys demand, generally speaking. And so the bet, the bet that, you know, the ways to hedge, obviously VIX is a lot cheaper than it was a few weeks ago. So now that's an opportunity for people to hedge in that regard. But I still continue to think that there is, 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 is you know, the crude oil, certain pockets of the commodity markets, maybe not the metals, uh, to, to a lesser degree ag uh, in terms of uh, crude oil, but I still think there's an opportunity to use that as a hedge because we do know that there is a structural bid for more barrels of oil, more gas, more coal, all these things, these dynamics, those that that demand isn't going away until we get to an equilibrium price that makes it go away. And so that to me is a big, big, uh, big, big tail. And do you, do you think a sector allocation to energy equities is as effective as the actual commodity hedge? 
Yeah, you typically don't see a tremendous amount of dis, uh, um, um, dispersion between those two things, between those two uh, instruments. Although typically, obviously, you know, there's times like 08, for example, where, you know, you, you tend not to want to be long energy stocks um, in 08, obviously. Um, but generally speaking, those are going to be positively correlated um, instruments. Okay. I was trying to think of a joke of AMC buying the uh, gold mine, but I couldn't think. And uh, you also have Exxon getting into Bitcoin mining, I think, as well. So those are totally. But on a serious note, I mean, Imran, I don't know if you've heard of this, but the response to the higher gas prices and oil prices here, uh, like in Connecticut, is to cut the gas tax. They're gonna, they want to talk about passing out, you know, uh, gas cards and things like that. So, you know, prices are kind of high. I mean, around here they're four or five bucks. I don't think that they. What's interesting to me is how how quickly the government's response to this is. I mean, we're going to the midterms here, and so I think optically they need to the politicians need to see like seem like they're doing something, mm -hmm. and they are trying to sort of gloss over the actual price supply and demand issues that are taking place. It's subsidizing, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I mean, to me, just like the the reserve release, I mean, they said that they will start to refill the reserves when oil goes under a hundred bucks is what I read. So they've now put a floor arguably in the price of oil at a hundred dollars yeah. and That's they're insane. passing out gas cards to offset some of the costs. And with the ESG, you know, environment that we have on now, you know, there's serial uh, issues with underproduction and things like that. So uh, there's a great guy, Bison Energy on Twitter. You look him up and, and, and they talk about, you know, a lot of those dynamics, but um, it just seems that, that the, uh, asset allocation here into some of those, you know, is going to trump and maybe help support the S and P a little bit. You could say if you're if you're able to get into some of these commodity names versus like tech heavy Nasdaq, where you know it doesn't have that same diversification, right? Um, the, the the rotation inside of the S and P may help keep it up a little bit better, I think, than than arguably some of the other indices. Totally. Yeah, you mentioned the SPR re reserve release. I mean, that smells of desperation if ever I've seen it, right? And 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 what it reminds me of is when the Fed cut rates 50 basis points in March, 2020, yeah. right? It was all of a sudden out of the blue, they're like, oh shit, we've got this very wrong. And they cut 50 basis points. And it was like, yeah, what difference is that gonna make when you're about to shut the entire global economy down at, at the same time? <laughs> yeah. and, and so that was a clear opportunity to fade. And I think this is the same thing in oil. I, I think it's a massive fade when you buy this it, dip. It's, it sounds like a big number and it, it's a big number in terms of the US economy, but it's not a big number in terms of global energy demand. It's two days of, uh, two days of consumption. It's mm -hmm. my favorite joke and it's I'll keep beating it to the horse's dead, but it's peeing into the ocean. <laughs> like, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. So we've kind of touched, you know, we've kind of already covered a little bit what I was kind of had, had in mind next, but you know, I'm just, to kind of help the listeners, I'd be curious from a retail perspective, you know, we have, we've had these big spikes in commodities, right. And Imran touched on, touched on that. Darius touched on, you know, we're probably not going back to where we were before. And you hear smart people like Luke Groman and Lynn Alden kind of mention that they feel that commodities might even be taking the place of bonds in, in certain uh, books allocations. And so, but as a retail investor, you know, how, how do I, how do I hedge myself? How do I prepare for this for this new dynamic am i is there things i can do in the options market do i just go out and buy usl you know before we move off this commodities thing i'd be curious how our listeners can really position themselves to take advantage of, of this new regime or dynamic however you want to refer to it darius why don't you go first in terms of asset allocation mix maybe and then me, me and brent can weigh in on the options yeah please do i'd love to definitely interested in your guys takes on that so i'll be quick because mine's pretty easy but the number one thing you can do in a time like this right Let, let's take a step back the macro environment, there's just sort of a four big things that really matter 
to get right from a macro perspective. One is the direction of travel and the pace of change and growth. Uh, obviously, direction of travel magnitude will fall under pace of change, pace of change for inflation. Um, the Fed's, the monetary and fiscal authorities' response to those two dynamics, and then there's positioning. Yeah, or is the market position for that response already, or is the market need to get position for that response? That's sort of the, how macro works. It's this big reflexive cycle of of those four four kind of key tenets. Right now, from a growth perspective, we're slowing. Leading indicators continue to point to a slowdown in growth that uh, should be below trend by the back end of the year. Um, from an inflation standpoint, we're still moonshotting to the upside. We're still building momentum and in inflation. Um, eventually, that momentum will dissipate and we'll get to a state where we're decelerating. But again, as I mentioned, it will be decelerating at not a fast enough pace to take the Fed out of the game from a tightening perspective. Positioning got very bared up heading into uh, you know sort of um, uh, the March Fed meeting. It's unwound a considerable degree, but it still probably hasn't gotten, or at least not probably from our from our indicator's perspective, it has not gotten fully uh, bullish. We have not transitioned to a market regime that is positive. We have not seen what we call our cross-asset correction risk indicator get to a level that would indicate people are, you know, kind of max bullish or anything close to max bullish. Where we're actually quite still in the negative state. So, you know, that kind of tells me that all these things, when you add them all up, like this is just not a great time to be trying to make a lot of money in financial markets. Like there's times to be a, a, a turtle and there's times to be a hawk. And, you know, it was a time to be a hawk, you know, sort of, you know, from the early part of 2020 all the way through the middle part of 2021, depending on when you jumped on the bandwagon, you still made a lot of money. If you bought the lows in March of 20, or if you, you waited for the second vaccine headline to buy a bunch of stuff, you could have made a tremendous amount of money. And this is just not one of those times. And so that's a long winded way of me saying cash is king in an environment like this. You can take risks, you can speculate, but you should be taking a lot less risk and, and speculating that your book size needs to be smaller for one, for the number one reason, realize volatility is higher. So your book size needs to be smaller, just generally speaking. But number two, just it's a lot more, it's a lot harder to kind of, you know, generate trending, you know, returns, either alpha or beta. And as a function of that, it's just, it's just not a smart idea to be running with the same amount of exposure on than it is that you had, you know, let's call it a year ago. And so that's kind of my key takeaway. But obviously, you know, you can kind of infer what our positioning is at 42 macro based on everything I said today. Cool. Brent? Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought a lot about this because I think by and large for the last 10 years, there's been a, a, a systematic role, you know, people, call selling inflows in the market, relatively low volatility. I mean, yeah, there's been some some fits and stops in there. But um, to me, this has turned into more of a, a trader's market, I suppose, and, as opposed to an investor's market. And it's just very cloudy and hard to understand uh, all the different different dynamics. So I'm a believer that over the long term, you know, when you really zoom out, the the S the S and P U.S. market is going to keep going higher, even if we have a bear market for a year or two. You know, by the time I retire at 80, I think the market's going to be higher than it is, you know, here. So I think that's the general way that I frame things. But um, you know, I like this market because I like volatility, right? I like to understand how people are positioned. And when that positioning gets to extreme, I like to play the other sides of that. So that's, you know, into March, that was a great trade. I think looking at a lot of these individual smaller uh, meme stocks that have rallied on just excessive call flow, you know, those are fun to trade, you know, to move around. But I think it sort of goes back to Darius, like you can't allocate your retirement assets, you know, in this in this type of uh in response to meme trading, right? So um, I like it that it's a trader's market. You know, get in, in and out of these uh, of these situations on extreme positioning and volatility and headline risk and the and and, and the like. Um, but you know, I, I think I have to sync with Darius on this and that. It's just very hard to to want to take a lot of risk in in equities on a long term basis or anything. Um, 
I will, for one, be looking for, obviously, you know, if we do have a big bear market, when we have these very large expirations, if I want to allocate capital to sort of my longer term, long equity bucket, I'll be waiting for those big options expirations times to, to show me here's the extreme in positioning and I'll allocate or try to buy into those, you know, major dips. But um, kind of without that extreme positioning, it's hard for me to, to take much of a view. Fortunately, there's extreme positioning in something almost every day. So that's kind of fun again from a trader's perspective. But uh, over the longer term investment, I think it's sidelines is the easiest way to play it. Hmm. Thanks, Brent. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the stuff I'd add is basically, whilst the timing of this, I think we all agree, right? We think equity's got a sell-off coming, right? And, and the timing of the sell-off is always difficult to call. Right, shorting a market is just a very hard thing to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the good thing about options is they give you the ability to have a fixed loss a lot of the time if you're only a premium spender. Um, obviously, if you're a bit more punchy, you sell calls that that's not a fixed loss. But you know what? You, for for people who've got a bit of experience and savvy, you can get away with that. So the the way I'm kind of doing it myself is, uh, you know, from listening to you, Darius, I I raised a load of cash in December uh, in my in my portfolio, in my long term. Um, bit more defensively postured in there in general with what I've got left. Um, had a nice allocation to commodities, touch wood, worked out well, and reduced some of that on the latest spike. But in general, that portfolio is pretty robust and pretty defensive. Okay. Um, now, on the way down, I was trying to pick up a few speculative kind of long things in options on the likes of ARC and stuff like that uh, to try and play about. They, they're not doing much. They made a tiny bit of money or whatever. But now we've rallied up to 4,600. You know, and I said this to all my subscribers, like if the, if the market can bounce back into that range, that's when I'm going to start putting hedges on in June, basically. Right. So I think in general, because we don't know when the sell offs going to come and it might take some time still, you want to pick hedges that carry quite well. So things like put spreads, things like put spread collars, like the, the JP Morgan trade that was mentioned earlier, they are trades that get you structurally short and carry quite positively. OK, mm -hmm. so I'm looking at those sort of structures in June. Um, and the nice thing about those is that if nothing happens, they're carrying quite well. So then you can just roll the position and do it again in September or whatever, basically. Now, if it starts to work and it starts to go down and you've had it on for a month or two, and I've mentioned this to you, Darius, before, is like you can buy the puts back that you're short yeah. and just leave yourself with a risk reversal, right? You don't have to carry the put spread the whole time if you see a reason to have that downside part of the distribution basically right but as a starting point i'd be a buyer of put spreads here maybe sell some calls or wait for another couple of weeks if we can squeeze up to 4700 then sell your calls have your put spread collar on and then as it decays and ticks away nicely if those puts cheapen up on the downside that you sold maybe you buy those back and then you leave yourself with that structural short against your portfolio that that basically is ready for the sell-off, right? That's kind, of, that's kind of how I'm looking at inequities. You did the exact same thing, but in reverse with treasuries, right? At the beginning of the year, you had a call spread collar on. Yeah, when I didn't sell the put, I no, 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 I was, I was too scared to sell the put. Right? Oh, so gotcha. I, I just bought the call spread. Call and spread, then yeah. as we puked, I bought the highest strike back, yeah. which didn't end up paying, but it wasn't worth a lot. So it was worth buying back. But yeah, you know, I'm only going to sell the tail in things that I'm very confident in and in a size that I'm willing, I can, I can stomach basically because selling options is dangerous, right? If you sell them in, in size, it can blow up your account very, very quickly. Yeah, be, be very careful for those of you. I don't yeah, know. we are not yeah. recommending selling naked options here, but the, and then the only other hedge that I think I've mentioned the commodity hedges that I'm looking at. And then the only other thing that kind of maybe might be interesting, maybe not yet, but might be interesting is if you think we're close to peak hawkishness, 
right? Which may maybe you know, 10 hikes priced in now or something stupid, whatever it is, like terminal rate of three, three and a half percent. I mean, you could go out to sort of March 24 now in the euro dollar curve, and you could buy way out of the money call options on that thing, like say mm -hmm. the 99 strike, right? Which takes rates back below one percent out in, in March 24. Mm. And, and there, you know, if we do think there's potential of a recession coming and a massive U-turn coming from the Fed by early next year, those things could pay you 5, 10x basically, right? Because they're not crazy expensive and, and, and they don't decay that fast because they're, they're March 24 options, right? So they're not like three month options that are just going to evaporate away. So those are potentially something as well that I'm looking at. I don't know what liquidity is like and how easy it is to trade from a retail perspective. I've not really traded a lot of those myself, but it is something on my radar and it is something maybe to be aware of because because I think that might be better than taking on TLTs. Calls on TLTs, they could work, but you've got the duration side of things. And if the curve does steepen, TLTs got a long way still to go to the downside, right? Whereas you're probably now, if you're looking in the short-term Eurodollar futures, like they've priced a hell of a lot in, right? So maybe there's a limit to how much more they fall. And then that call option is now starting to get as cheap as it's going to get, you know? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, this is this has been great. I appreciate you guys um staying on this long with us. And but I do just have a couple more things that I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up. Kind of things that our audience has pointed out. Some a couple of things that I'm curious myself. The first one uh, we had we had people on Twitter wondering about treasuries and liquidity. And the way I figured we could kind of address that is maybe if we could hear Darius's thoughts on bonds. You know, hopefully I'm not giving away your book here, but I know you're a, a little early to the to the bond trade. I'd be curious if, you know, is that something that you're dialing up now that yields have really taken off lately or are you still kind of waiting it out? Yeah, no. Uh, so uh, in full disclosure, we, we stopped ourselves out of a decent amount of that bond exposure uh, recently. Just as I mentioned earlier, I, I don't need to beat the dead horse on it. But the two things I'd say we got wrong, uh, not just we, obviously, a lot of people got it wrong, but uh, was the, the, the sea change in inflation expectation and, and inflation surprise dynamics in Europe. That was hard to see coming, obviously, with the war. And then secondarily, this positive covariance between stocks and bonds. You know, unless you knew inflation was going to not only get way north of five percent and stick there for an extended period of time, you know, you were uh, it was going to be uh, very difficult to kind of have bonds actually work as a hedge in your portfolio. So now that we know this is a new lay of the land, until that changes, you know, we're kind of just waiting that out. <clears throat> as I mentioned uh, earlier, <clears throat> the two things we're watching for in terms of getting back into uh, grossing up bond exposure: when does the growth slow down really start to materialize again? Our target on that is kind of you know June, you know May through July, or sorry, sorry June, July, August is kind of the, the the main window for that in terms of reporting when you get the data reported. And then lastly, when does inflation start to break down from a momentum perspective? That's anybody's guess. I mean, you can continue, you can see another spike in crude oil, you can see another spike in energy prices, ag prices, or things of that nature. There's a lot of stuff going on from an inflation perspective that's hard to model. Um, but you know, we all know the base effects will take inflation lower, but at what pace? You know what pace does the momentum really break down? So when does the momentum really break down? So we're definitely got our eye on those two dynamics. Awesome, awesome. So the the, the last one that kind of has to, to tie in with my curiosities and and what the the community is wondering. It, it may not be in everyone's wheelhouse, so whoever wants to take it on, feel free to go for it. But it has to do with crypto and Bitcoin and how it's increasingly becoming tied to the macro. You know, have examples of people in Russia and Ukraine who are using Bitcoin to buy vehicles because they didn't have another option. You have uh, the Bitcoin got a, a little bit of a bid as a safe haven asset when Russia and Ukraine happened. And you even have uh, Russia coming out, possibly saying that they would be willing to consider accepting Bitcoin for oil and gas purchases. And so really, the question is just what do you think is in store for crypto Q2 and, and going forward, given all these headwinds and the dynamics that we've been talking about? 
Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll wrap up and finish on that. So um, crypto, Bitcoin and Ethereum just broke out to bullish from the perspective of all to just a momentum signal after having been bearish really since going back to December. You know, we uh, we made a great call um, at the beginning of December to get all of all of our crypto exposure. And, you know, obviously we saw some pretty deep crashes from that point. So that was a good call. And now we're starting to say, hey, look, the market is telling you that there's some positive dynamics going on. So from a macro perspective, we talked about this. We're in this window of time where things aren't bad enough from a growth perspective to really catalyze a meaningful kind of reduction in asset market liquidity or a meaningful increase in the demand for liquidity amongst investors. And so as long as we're in this sort of kind of, I wouldn't say bullish window of time, but it's just not bearish. In the absence of that bearish with the starting point of, you know, kind of really bombed out and negative positioning, it's positive. You know, there's kind of three things. I was talking with uh, Dylan LeClaire over at Bitcoin Magazine in our program yesterday, and he kind of highlighted a few things that are actually positive on-chain dynamics that I thought really um supportive one you have illiquid supply as a percent of total supplies like breaking out to new highs historically that's been a positive uh indicator uh right now you also have you know last price breaking out above the short-term who realize price which has also been a positive indicator and then you have sort of contango yields they're now starting to pay you to buy crypto again they're starting to pay you to be uh in this asset class uh and so those three kind of factors are telling you hey in as long as we have this window of time which again could be if you know we're going to be publishing you're going to be publishing this on april 1st is this window one to two months? If you have a one to two month window, we know the realized volatility in crypto can explode to the upside just like a meme stock. So could you see a retest of the all-time highs? I don't know if we're going to get there, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out um, in, the, in, the, in the context of this particular window, just given the kind of the positioning dynamics and some of the on-chain dynamics I just highlighted. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to weigh in a little bit there. I know, I know Brent, you don't, I don't think you follow crypto as closely as us two, but um, I think crypto, I, I agree in the short term, we're clearly seeing positive price action, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the other coins, like Sol is up, Solana's up 40% in the last week. I mean, it's gone berserk, right? Um, so clearly there's a bit of a catch-up going on. It underperformed quite a lot. It's having a catch-up. It had some news about OpenSea integrating Solana into their NFT platform. So there's some, there's some idiosyncratic stuff going on there. But in general, crypto is moving and it's moving higher and it's breaking some levels, right? Personally, though, if we're looking forward to June, June to September area, I don't think it's going to escape the risk asset meltdown that we are foreseeing, basically. It will not. Right. <laughs> Let's be clear. It, you agree with me, right? So the Fed yeah. policy that is going to engineer some kind of growth slowdown slash recession to cool inflation is going to hurt is going to hurt that as a risk asset. Because I don't think that one day it might decorrelate from risk assets. It ain't doing that by June or July, basically. No. Right. That's that's the way I see it. Right. So. So I think crypto, it might not crash as hard as we're used to seeing. So like, you know, last year, if you'd said equities down 30%, how much is crypto going to be down? 60, 70% easy, right? Mm -hmm. I think the latest risk off we saw in Russia, with Russia, we started to see crypto trading down, but on a very low vol, right? Realized vol in crypto has been between 40 and 60 on the, on the way down or on the way up. Right, even on this latest breakout. So I think there's some structural changes going on in the vol market in crypto. I think there's a load of supply that's been coming through these weekly DOVs. I think that puts dealers in positions where, you know, crypto doesn't just have to have a meltdown, basically, right, at the first sign of trouble. And then you've got this underlying structural bid from institutions that are planning to adopt this stuff as some part of their portfolio sitting on the bid around 30, 35K, right mm -hmm. it will soak it up as we go down so they're not chasing the market higher like retail do because they get all excited 
but they're going to sit on the bid and let it come to them because they know the macro headwinds that are out there probably mean it does come back to them basically right so mm-hmm. that's for me like how i see it playing out yes we might get some upside we're gonna get a sell-off probably back towards that 30k area and then we probably won't crash as hard as we would expect because that that underlying insto bid's going to soak it up basically right that, that's 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 my two cents on that mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah, awesome. Fantastic. This, is, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I'm honored to have been able to help make it happen. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are super grateful as it's been uh, rather, rather informative. And so if anyone has any final thoughts, I'd say now's the time to go ahead and get those out there before we let Imran uh, close us out. And again, I uh, really appreciate you guys. Uh, I'll just go. I'd say I, it's been what an awesome experience. I mean, I've probably been to somewhere close to 4,000 institutional meetings across the country and world over the course of my career. You know, I mean, just, you know, like Boston, New York, you know, California, Texas, London, you know, every place you can imagine, every, every tower, you, 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 we know where these places are. Uh, and this is easily a 99th percentile, not a hundred percentile conversation I've had. And I don't mean that to blow smoke or kind of hype it up because I'm involved in it. I just, the, the range of, of uh, discussion, the range of uh, the, the breadth of knowledge we have and we, as, as a team, in my opinion, is, is really humbling to be a part of. And I, I just thank you guys for putting this together. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Imran. Thank you, Brent, my friends. Yeah. Yeah, thank you guys very much for putting this together. I, I had fun. Yeah. Guys, I mean, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you guys on the show. I mean, you know, thank you for taking the time to come. Um, I think we're going to be doing this again sometime. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully the listeners learned a lot and, and enjoyed the conversation. But, yeah, guys, it's, it's been humbling for me to get to know you guys uh, and really, you know, consider you friends now. Um, and yeah, it's just been great to have you. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Look forward to grabbing some pints, boys. <laughs> yeah, man. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. To learn more about Options Insight and our trading community, please visit us at www.options-insight.com. Or you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and also follow us on Twitter at options underscore insight. Until next time, thanks.